1: Every
2: weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so
1: excited about this podcast, The Bright Side.
2: You guys are giving people
1: a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share.
3: Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.
4: Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric.
0: Bob, well, well, I'm so grateful for your time and your wisdom.
3: Well, I don't know whether there's any wisdom, but I always enjoy talking about these kinds of topics because usually we don't in life. And to me, these are probably the most important topics that we can talk about because they're the foundation of our life. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I do really believe in the sharing of experience because... It's identifiable. It reminds us that we're part of something, that however isolated we feel, there are people, you know, you would be identifiable as an extraordinarily successful person, but it's good to know that you are a person.
3: It's the best compliment I could have. Thank you.
0: Hello, I'm Minnie Driver. Welcome to the Mini Questions, season two. I've always loved Proust's Questionnaire. It was originally a 19th century parlor game where players would ask each other 35 questions aimed at revealing the other player's true nature. It's just the scientific method, really. In asking different people the same set of questions, you can make observations about which truths appear to be universal. I love this discipline. And it made me wonder, what if these questions were just the jumping-off point? What greater depths would be revealed if I asked these questions as conversation starters with thought leaders and trailblazers across all these different disciplines? So I adapted Proust's questionnaire, and I wrote my own seven questions that I personally think are pertinent to a person's story. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that's grown out of a personal disaster? And I've gathered a group of really remarkable people, ones that I am honored and humbled to have had the chance to engage with. You may not hear their answers to all seven of these questions. We've whittled it down to which questions felt closest to their experience or the most surprising or created the most fertile ground to connect. My guest today on Mini Questions is the co-founder of MTV and iHeartMedia, where he is the current chairman, Bob Pittman. Bob is a media entrepreneur who feels to me like he's sort of in a league of his own. He's had so many interesting and creative incarnations in a ton of consumer-focused industries. Just to give you an idea, Bob has been CEO of AOL Networks, Six Flags Theme Parks, Century 21 Real Estate, and AOL Time Warner, as well as being CEO of Clear Channel, which was what evolved and expanded into the current IHOP media. So it's extraordinarily varied. He's one of the most interested people I've ever met, and when you're having a conversation with him, ideas sort of spark off each other, creating this brilliant feeling of forward momentum. And given the scope of his success, it feels like, you know, he could probably sit back and enjoy the extraordinarily diverse fruits of his labour. But whenever we speak, I Always get to see the perspective of a person who is constantly looking forward and is interested in the exploration and unfolding of life, not just business. It feels like a weird time to be asking this first question, but it's always pertinent within peacetime or war. But when and where were you happiest?
3: I hope that I'm happiest right now. Someone told me when I was a young man, said, you know, most people never live because they're in the past with their regrets or in the future with their worries, and they never get right here, right now. And so I've tried as a human, not always successful, to sort of understand that and try and be happy wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, and at the moment I'm alive. I've had a lot of happy moments, but I want this to be the happiest moment, and I wanna appreciate this moment the most of any moment I could have. Is
0: that part of the contingency of happiness for you is presence and appreciation?
3: it's a good way to say it. I I think so. But it's also, I I just don't want to think, well, I was happy then. Why am I not happy now? I know. I mean, to me, happiness is one of those things that I can either choose to be happy or I can choose to be unhappy. And uh, how do I get myself in a frame where I just look at things and go, I'm happy. I'm feeling good. I appreciate it.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, sometimes just saying it. It's tricky with circumstance not lining up with one's expectations. And even though I think that expectation might be the deadliest psychological weapon that we have against ourselves of expecting reality to conform to what it is we want as opposed to being in the isness of what it is.
3: I agree with you. I think I think one of the worst things we do, and this is gonna sound very weird, and I don't mean it this extreme, but I'm gonna say it this extreme. The worst thing we do is plan. Plans don't come true. Something wonderful can happen, but, you know, plan we sort of develop, I think, to reduce our fear of the future and our anxiety about the future. But to me, you know, yeah, I, do I have a plan? Of course, in business, I've got a game plan. We lay out the year. But it's interesting, even at work, we have a weekly meeting, what we call our StratCom, and it's the senior leaders of the company. And the goal is to adjust the plan because we know no plan. <laughs> and, and even in a week, the plan has changed that this plan is not going to come true. And, you know, the plan's a hope. It's a dream. It's an, you know, as you say, an expectation. But I think sometimes we get ourselves off track by saying, I planned something and I'm unhappy because it didn't come out as planned. Wait a minute. You made the plan. Uh, Why don't you make another plan? Make a plan where it came out exactly as you want. It bedevils a lot of people and leads people astray from their own enjoyment of this journey we have called life, you know, and at the end of the day, this thing, it ends the same way, no matter what we do. You know, most business, they go, you know, the means is not important. It's just the end. What are you going to do? Well, in life, it's the opposite. The end's the same, no matter what you do. So it's all about the journey. And I think if we can begin to get an appreciation of that journey, it not only makes it better for us spiritually, mentally, etc. But also even in business, it makes it better because we're just realistic about there's so many variables you can't control. Stop trying to control.
0: But if we know these things, why do we persist then with the expectation of circumstance either conforming to the idea that we have about what a good version of that is? Like when everything does as we've just seen in the last two years how things come apart in an instant why are we still so attached as humans to this idea of it working out as we envision it as opposed to going let me stay incredibly loose and fluid with the vessel that the things i want is going to come to me in because maybe it's going to be different
3: i think the ambiguity and the randomness makes people very anxious and uncomfortable. And I think if they can do a plan and say, I've got my five-year plan, I've got my one-year plan, I have my week plan, I know what I'm gonna do, I know what's coming for me. It goes, ah, I've reduced the anxiety. But I'm not sure that's healthy. But I I will tell you, some people criticize me because they you're so ambiguous. You know, you're not being clear. And I go, I'm trying to be realistic that there's only so much that's knowable. And life, I think, is more of a random walk then it is a planned experience. I look back and, I'm, you know, even talking about business, I look back on my business career and go, gosh, it's been a series of meteors flying out of the sky and hitting me on the head. It's that kind of randomness that my career has been about. And when I was a young man, I thought I had a plan. That plan fell apart really quickly. And thank goodness I sort of opened my mind to say, oh, well, maybe I'll do that then if that's popping up. And in my personal life as well is, uh, you know, you think, gosh, I know what's going to be great for my kids. I know what my kids should do. I know what school they should go to. And wow, it's like, that's not at all what happens. And if I try and force my kids into my plan for them, I'm not doing them a favor and I'm not doing anything for my relationship with them. It's this idea of how do I do active listening and really try and understand the moment and where they are and how I can support them as opposed to try and get them to conform to my plan.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually the secret of happiness. In fact, that's what I think happiness is, is being able to let go of what you think happiness should be and allow it to be what is and fit yourself. There's a great quote, I can't remember who's William James or something about our experience is what we attend to. Genuinely, if you look at something, I go, it can only look like this. And my happiness and my everything, my business, my relationship, my everything is hung on it looking this way.
3: Well, it's it's also one of those saying is reality is what you perceive it to be. And, you know, this whole discussion now about is does the universe create consciousness or does consciousness create the universe? I mean, you get the very fundamental levels of existence. And, and so, you know, when you get down to happiness is, I think the challenge is to be happy with what we have, when we have it, how we have it, and to accept happiness as opposed to reject happiness.
0: I agree. So Eleanor Roosevelt, people are as happy as they make up their mind to be. <laughs> I like that. I always like that.
3: Yeah, that's a very good line.
0: She was cool. I liked her. Yes,
3: yeah, she was very cool.
0: In your life, can you tell me about something that has grown out of a personal disaster?
3: Sure. When I was six years old, I was at a family reunion on Thanksgiving in a little farm outside of Holly Springs, Mississippi. And one of my uncles put me on a horse to give he's giving all the kids a ride. And the horse reared up, threw me off, stepped in my face, and I lost an eye. Uh, by the way, lucky the horse didn't kill me, so I'm lucky that all I did was lose an eye. But having a artificial eye growing up made me a bit of an outsider. I was the kid with the glass eye. And kids are not—young kids especially can be extraordinarily cruel, uh, not accepting— but I think that, that experience gave me the feeling of what it feels like to be on the outside, what it feels like to be an outsider, gave me a little bit of detachment uh, from being on the inside and allowed me to sort of grow into being myself, probably helped with my empathy and developing that And I think I probably wouldn't be anywhere near the human being I am without having had that, what you would consider to be a, you know, a personal disaster. But ultimately, I think if I look back on my life and say, why am I here at this point instead of somewhere else? I have to attribute a lot of it to what I got out of being the kid with one eye.
0: Wow. Were there any other children that you grew up with who had either a disability or had some other challenge that they were dealing with? Or were you, were you really isolated in that experience?
3: I was probably the kid with the problem. I mean, I think today we would probably identify some of the kids as having dyslexia. You know, dyslexia was undiagnosed back then. And, you know, you had these kids that were thought to be dumb. Right. uh, That were not at all dumb. They were brilliant, but they had dyslexia. And so there are issues like that that I look back on now and go, gosh, it's very clear what was going on. But at the time, it was more physical. Do you have an arm, a leg, an eye or something missing? It was isolated, but it was also, it allowed me to build who I am. And I certainly wouldn't trade it for anything now.
0: Yeah.
2: Hello. Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place or from She-Hulk or from social media and my activism. Way basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people. I love learning. I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise people like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok, Kelly Rowland, and more. I Weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
6: I used to have so many men. How this beguiling
5: woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications.
2: She had a Harvard plaque
0: What person, place or experience most altered your life?
3: My mom and dad, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood. If, you know, there's a parental lottery, I certainly won it. And, uh, you know, I lived in a house where the word you couldn't say was hate. We don't hate anything, honey. And it really set me on a course. I'm not saying I've lived up to all those expectations. But I have them at my core and I am very grateful for them. And I think that certainly shaped me. I also think I have to say I was shaped by I grew up in Mississippi in the 50s and 60s, which was segregated. When I started school, there were black and white schools There were colored only bathrooms and white only bathrooms. When I graduated from high school, our school was about 50-50 white, black. So everything happened in that period I was going to school in the civil rights movement. So, you know, everybody's influenced, I think, by whatever that big thing that's overhangs them in their childhood. And that probably for me was the one that hit me the most. And so as a result, I sort of still see that in society and and look for it and notice it.
0: Did you talk about the civil rights movement with your parents? Like, did they address it with you? Or was it more experiential.
3: Oh, yeah. In my family, it was a big issue and everybody there was working on it, at least the people I knew working on trying to work for change. Um, My dad was a Methodist minister and in Mississippi, they had a black, they have conferences in the Methodist church and they had a black conference and a white conference in the same geographic area. And my dad made it his mission to integrate the two and to combine them. Which meant the Ku Klux Klan came after my dad a few times, although I was a little young to sort of understand the impact of that when that was going on. And then after they merged it, my dad was in the, uh, by that time, in the executive branch of the church and worked on trying on what he called reconciliation. Is trying to get people to join together and sort of, you know, move past it and, you know, mentored some of the black ministers as they went into some predominantly white churches and really tried to change the tenor of things. But there are, you know, awful stories that go with it, too. My mother's first cousin, who she was very close to, sort of like a brother, was the school superintendent in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And he had thrown some Klansman's kid out of school for harassing a black child. And they came one Friday night, shot up his daughter's bedroom. And my mother's cousin wound up committing suicide and just sort of couldn't see a way out, felt torn between doing the right thing and protecting his family. And they're awful stories like that. And, you know, certainly, you know, that pales in comparison to the stories that the Black community suffered through and the horrors that they dealt with and the degradation. I think for all of us who were there, my mom and I were watching a NPR special on the civil rights movement in the 90s. We were in New York and watching it together. And my mother turned to me with tears and just go, it, She said, for the life of me, I can't imagine how we let that go on. And I think there's something in that when you grow up in things a certain way, at what point do you look around and say, hey, this isn't right. And the lesson I've tried to take out of it that goes beyond this is what am I seeing today that's not right, but I'm just not noticing because it's quote unquote normal. And I think there are probably a lot of them I'm not even seeing right now. But I at least try to look for those. And as we look in the world is what is happening that's not right? At what moment do you notice it? And then when you notice it, what do you do about it? But I think as human beings, we all have that obligation. And unfortunately or fortunately, I have something in my past that was so horrible. And the fact that my mother looking at me at that time, I mean, I still remember that and saying, yeah, my mother grew up in it and sort of didn't see it. Hmm. Didn't sort of see what was possible and uh, and then didn't take an action. And they could have if people had seen it earlier.
0: Do you uh look today and do you feel whether it's a similar or maybe it's akin to the groundswell of change that is hopefully happening in some of the systemic shit that exists in in our world like having seen things really shift in the 60s do you think that that's playing out now you know present world collapse
3: (laughs) yeah you know what i think we're finding you know there are things that are falling apart and there are things that are growing and blossoming my dad used to talk about, and I'd talk about somebody did something terrible. And he says, well, I believe in the redemptive power of love. And He was talking about forgiveness, that we should all have an open heart to forgive. Because if somebody says something wrong to someone, say, hey, here's what what's wrong with that. And give them the chance to say, wow, you're right. I'm sorry. And sorry means something. Apologies do mean something. So, I mean, I love the old thing, slow to blame, quick to forgive. I think there's always a room for that and always room for love in our hearts to accept that people basically, I think most people want to do good. I think most people want to do the right thing. There was time at which, you know, and I'm sure we've all had it, in which I've been in a meeting, someone says something and it's off. And after the meeting, I'll say, you know, I know you maybe didn't realize this, but you said this. And almost always they're horrified. They're mortified. They go, oh, I didn't even realize that. I didn't see it that way. I feel so badly. And so I think that's actually most people's feelings. And at work, I try and push upon our people that don't be afraid of the mistake because we learn from it. Forgot who it was that I, I either win or I learned something. That, and, I, and I preach to my kids that, you know, a failure and success are the same thing. They're just a stepping stone. They're not the end. And what we call a failure is I step on that stone and I go another direction. On what we call a success, I step on that stone and keep going in the same direction. Hmm. But those aren't the ends. Uh, they're just merely a step on the journey and i think if we can wrap our heads around the fact that we're constantly moving we're constantly growing we're constantly changing then it allows us to be a little more gracious with our forgiveness and our understanding being a preacher's kid I always remember vengeance is mine saith the lord
0: wait what does that mean vengeance is mine that god was like only i can have vengeance
3: yeah don't have vengeance that that's not for humans to have
0: that's not for you people yeah yeah God, I wish he'd he'd given us a proper list. (laughs) This is really not you're cast out because you ate from the tree of knowledge. I want a really specific list. It's why I do this podcast, because I like very specific questions so I can have very specific answers and try and understand the meaning of everything. What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you?
3: I think it has to be a mother-child relationship which is one of the most beautiful, pure relationships I've ever seen. I mean, I'd love to say it's dad-child because I love my kids and I hope they love me as much as I love them. But I actually think there's something about the mother and child childbirth with a child. I mean, that experience, that just sort of indescribable bond, I think is pretty powerful. It's sort of hard to imagine love could be any deeper and impurer than that.
0: Was that observable because you were there at the birth of your children or because you've observed their relationship with their mother?
3: I think both and also the relationship I had with my mother. mother right? and watching other people with their mother. I have a close friend who was the victim of um, just awful abuse as a child. And I said, how do you cope with it? She said, I think about that abuser as once was just a baby and their mother loved that person. And I try and take it back to love as opposed to what they became. And I go, wow, that is like so advanced because I'm not sure I could ever bring myself to do that. But I do think this idea, and it was one of the ones that sort of keyed me in and sort of focused me again on that mother-child love. It being so pure that it's what we sort of all aspire to in some form or another.
0: God, that's so interesting. I mean, I think you're right. Like there is, it's unadulterated, you know. It is the version of unconditional.
3: Yeah, completely unconditional. And it may turn into something that gets distorted over time. Yeah. But at that moment, it's this sort of truly unconditional love. I hope what we all can achieve and strive for.
0: Yeah. It sure looks like some people don't want to strive for that. Or
3: they don't know the power of it. You know, you say unconditionally, except for. And they go, no, no, there's not ex- no except for. Yeah. Look, it's easier for me to talk about it because I had that for my mother. And I know people that didn't have it from their parents. It's a much more difficult experience for them. You know, it's the regret of parenting issues. But if you've got it, you can always call upon it. And it's that sense that it's always there. Omnipresent gives you this insecurity to go through your life with sort of a base. And I think people who've not been given that gift, have a lot of work they've got to do that. Fortunately, I don't have to do so. I'm not judgmental about the issues they deal with because I understand that they're going through something that I I can't totally relate to.
0: It's funny. I think about a lot. I maybe since mum died, the love for a mother and the love for my child. It's like a what's it called? Is it a double helix? The shape of the DNA
3: it keeps going. Yeah.
2: Hello. Amelia Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place, or from She-Hulk, or from social media and my activism. I Way basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people, I love learning, I have a lot to learn and I'm inviting you along with me. On I Way with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Byer, Alok Kelly, Roland and more. I weigh with Jamila Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
6: I used to have so many men.
5: How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications.
6: She had a
2: Harvard plaque
3: lack of patience. Ah, I run things too quickly. I want to move too quickly through things. I don't sometimes take the time. We're just talking about active listening, et cetera. I keep wanting to jump to a conclusion and jump to an action and jump to the next step and not sort of savor the moment. Take the time to sort of let it all unfold and blossom. So, Patience is not a virtue of mine, but I work hard at trying to compensate.
0: When you're impatient, what are you impatient to get to?
3: That's exactly the point. Nothing. <laughs> There's no reason to have that impatience. I can take a beat. I can listen a little longer. I can take a beat between the last thing someone says and what I say. I can think about it a second. I tend to move too quickly to action. And again, I try and modulate it. I have some degree of self-awareness that may I have self-control. And I do work on that. Going back to the point about happiness it does interfere with my happiness and others happiness if they feel like i'm not listening to them enough and i haven't taken the time to truly consider everything they have it sounds like i'm moving too quickly to a conclusion uh it's harder for them to be happy and it's harder for me to be happy
0: do you think there's anything other than catching oneself in the moment of doing these things that we would like to change about ourselves that when you're doing it and having an awareness of it is how it evolves
3: I can have some self-awareness and begin to control it to a certain degree. I stopped working in 2002 completely, and I've been working full-time since I was 15 years old, probably never taking more than a two-week vacation ever in that period of time. And uh, my vacation was like long weekends or something and always thinking about work. And when I stopped working, it took me about two or three months to come off the adrenaline addiction. And then I discovered that it's actually possible to be bored. And I began to enjoy boredom and go, wow, I'm bored right now. I'm just going to wallow in this boredom. And I think that my patience got a lot better because I just sort of wallowed in the moment and accepted whatever it was as interesting. Boredom was suddenly interesting. Wow, this is a great sensation. Boredom and get excited about whatever life threw me at that moment and not feel like I had to quickly do something. You know, when I first stopped working, if I went to the beach, if I was lying on the beach, I'd go, wow, what am I going to do now? What am I just lying on the beach? And then at a certain point, I began to go, wow, this is great. I'm just lying here. And it was a real transformation and gave me an insight that I can still use, even though I've gone back to my adrenaline addiction and I did go back to work and my impatience is still a problem for me. I can call upon this time I had to go Boredom is good. And I should look for a little more of that and a little bit of that, ah, time where I don't have to process anything. I don't have to have an opinion. I can just let life drift over me a little bit. And that's sort of the opposite of impatience.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. We were spent a lot of time being bored when we were kids because I was, you know, obviously, there weren't cell phones and computers. And my son, sometimes I say, put the phone down and stare out the window and see what happens. <laughs> and he does, and he's like, it's so weird, you kind of go into a trance. And I was like, yeah, that was like my whole childhood.
3: <laughs> well, you know, in my childhood, my parents said, turn off that TV, turn off the radio.
0: Oh, which is funny because you then went and put the radio on television with MTV. <laughs>
3: So there's always something that kids would occupy themselves with or people will rather than just enjoy ourselves and our space. And it's hard sometimes to feel comfortable with yourself in that space because you really have to confront your space and you have to live with you. There's nothing to distract you. There's nothing to keep you busy. There's nothing to drive your ambition. But I think it's wildly helpful. And when I can have those moments to recharge my batteries, I'm so much better at all this other stuff that I think is better if I keep working. Yeah. But I discover again and again, it's actually better when I recharge myself a little bit and then come back to the task. And I, I find that if I'm working on a problem or trying to come up with a creative solution, even looking for a line in an advertising campaign, that the best thing I can do is sort of, okay, load myself up, understand all, and then forget about it. Yeah. And at that moment where I'm in my most zen moment, uh, down in my alpha state, which for me is about a 15 minute hot shower in the morning where I just like zone out, suddenly the answer are just pop in my head and I have run out of the shower so many times with a pen and a wet piece of paper writing a speech writing down something because it comes to me and I think there's a great lesson in that which is it's not going to come when you try too hard it's going to come in your most relaxed moment in which you're just letting things drift over you
0: hmm. that's an enormous amount of trust that is required to let go of I think being in control
3: probably it's interesting, when I was a young man, I would give speeches and I would write the speeches and slavishly read them. And at a certain point, I realized I could do a much better talk if I just got up and talked. So I would have maybe three points scribbled down on a little note and just get up and start talking. The scary thing when you do that is you have to, go to your point about trust, trust yourself, because suddenly I'm standing in front of all these people and I've really thought of nothing except a couple of things I want to talk about. And I just go with the flow. And I find when I do that, it's much better. It's much more what I really want to say. I think people enjoy it more. It's more relevant to them. And even sometimes we're doing a, you know, I'm doing a speech for the company or something, and I've got to do that inspirational closing. I don't have any idea what I'm going to say. And I just step out there and start talking. And that's one of the ones where you really have to just trust that it will come to you. But boy, is it scary at that moment. Now, I've been doing it long enough that i probably not scared enough, but it's just a sort of relax, go out there and whatever's in your mind, your heart, just let it start coming out hmm. and just trust that it will be the right thing as opposed to, oh, I said the wrong word. I stumbled on a word or I said, you know, no one cares about any of that. They care about your message.
0: Wow. I wholeheartedly agree. I really do. I think that so much is about letting go and trusting and we don't do that. We don't, because I think I think it goes back to planning. You think you have to have a plan. You have to have a script. You have to have a preordained idea of what you're doing. When, like you said, it's a random walk life. It's not prescribed. And yet, I honestly think it's fear of death. I really do. I really think that the distraction and the planning and this idea of control is because we know, like you said, where this ends. This is where it's going. But if we actually lived with that idea there is a clock ticking. Don't waste a single moment worrying about the moment not looking like you think it should.
3: Right. I think it is mortality. I agree with you. I think that is a big consideration for people and it drives us more than we recognize.
0: I didn't realise until my mum died that it was a huge consideration. It's actually incredible. It's actually an an extraordinary moment because you can use it like rocket fuel to just be like, I'm no longer available to judge whether this looks like how it should. In fact, the word should, I've said this before on this podcast. My mother used to say the word should, should be buried in a big hole in the backyard.
3: (laughs) mother was very enlightened. I think the loss of our parents does something to us all. My mom died in her sleep. And so I didn't get a chance to be with her as she died. My dad was dying and died slowly. And my brother and I sat with him the day he died and held his hand as he died. In this weird way, it was such a beautiful experience to be able to share that moment with him because I think we're so afraid of it. We want to avoid it. But I went on the journey with my dad. I'm still here, but it was, a, you know, it's a lot of talking to my dad. It's okay. You know, you can you can let go. We love you. And sort of all the reasons why he had a wonderful life and why we love him so much. And with my mother, I, I sort of missed that that moment, although I had a great relationship with her and felt very close to her, and even after her death, I still feel her presence. But I think you're exactly right. We're sort of fearful that we want to run it away. I had a house in Mexico for about 20 years, and I got to know Day of the Dead there which has turned out to be one of my favorite holidays because it is so contrary to what we do in America. And in this little town, San Miguel de and there was a expats cemetery and there was a cemetery for the locals. And on Day of the Dead, it's so sad because there's no activity in the cemetery for the expats. It's dark. And in the other, they're celebrating the life of those people and they have their food out, their favorite songs. They're acting as if they're still alive and still a part of them. And I just thought it's such a beautiful experience to accept death and to sort of put it into your life as opposed to, as you point out, spend your whole life trying to avoid the existence of it.
0: Bob is not only a wonderful podcast guest, but he is also a wonderful podcast host. You can listen to his own podcast, Math and Magic, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're at it, check out the iHeartRadio app for radio stations, music, and more podcasts. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music, by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks. To Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella, and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dale Pescador, Kate Driver, and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver.
4: Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, Jamila Jamil here. You may know me from my role in The Good Place, or from She-Hulk, or from social media and my activism iWay basically started as a social movement and my podcast is one of my truly greatest achievements. It's a podcast against shame and a place for us to have really honest and truly inclusive conversations. I love connecting with people, I love learning, I have a lot to learn, and I'm inviting you along with me. On iWay with Jamila Jamil, I have friends, activists, specialists, and absolute heroes join me to teach me from their experience and expertise. People like Conan O'Brien, Jane Fonda, Roxanne Gay, Reese Witherspoon, Nicole Bayer, Alok, Kelly Rose, Roland, and more. I weigh with Jameela Jamil has new episodes out every Tuesday, and you can find the show on earwolf.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts.